Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of December 6th, 2021. On this week's show, we'll break down the college football playoff and good old boy Brian Kelly and his family moving from Notre Dame to LSU. Bradford William Davis of Insider will be here to discuss the Major League Baseball lockout and also his fascinating story about Major League Baseball using two different baseballs last season. Finally, we'll talk about blowouts, for which it was a big week, led by the OKC Thunder losing to Memphis by an NBA record 73 points. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. I also once was detained by police in Albania during a reporting trip. Josh Levine is also in D.C. He's the author of The Queen, the national editor of Slate, and the producer and host of One Year, 1995. Hey, Josh. I just can't. <laughs> erase the image of Foghorn Leghorn getting arrested in Albania. I I don't know if that's what you wanted me to be <laughs> thinking of, but like you kind of, you, you really uh, dropped a bunch of, of, of uh, fodder on us there. Now. Yeah, do you want to say all, more I'm about all Twitter here. Albania? Uh, yeah, I was in Albania detention? doing some reporting for the Wall Street Journal. I was doing a piece about Albania's Olympic team and I did another another story while I was there. This was after the fall of communism. And I was wandering around the city and I was taking pictures and I took a picture of what turned out to be a government building and a cop car pulled up and forced me to get in and detained me in a police station for a couple of hours without letting me call anybody. Wow. I think they went through my hotel room too. What was your, what, what was the detention room like? Did you have like a access to anything? Was it a, win- I just imagine, imagine were a there windowless snacks? room. Yeah. There were no snacks. I remember that the walls were yellow. It was pretty grim. <laughs> mm. Sounds One year, 1995, Albania. Uh, I'm certainly prepared to do that piece, but uh, a better one year was Christina Cotarucci's uh, episode three last week about a reproductive medicine scam, women's frozen eggs being used without their consent. Listen to it. Listen to all of them. It was terrific. What's up next? Uh, thank you. And yeah, Christina did an amazing job with that. Um, next up is our... Producer Evan Chong has a story about the first internet site, or one of the first that went viral. Um, it's a really fascinating story about something that folks don't uh, remember. So look out for that this week. I just can't believe that in 1995 you've missed out on Stefan in Albania, and then you didn't cover my senior year of high school football in 1995. So there's just a lot that's left out. It just, I guess it speaks to how you know, how pivotal and important that year was that those two important stories didn't make it into Well, so the what season. we create is a, a kind of pointillist portrait of the year. And then when all of the dots are there, people see the Albania and the senior year of high school. It's all, it's all kind of there between, between the dots. That was Joel Anderson in Palo Alto, California. Hi, Joel. Hey. 
Good morning, y'all. Uh, yeah, it, I, I will say, one year, 1995. Very good podcast. Thank Very you. Good. Also Great. a good podcast. Segway alert. Slow Burn Season 6, The L.A. Riots. I am now all caught up. Joel, episodes three and four about L.A. Police Chief Daryl Gates and about Rodney King's life were gripping and infuriating, and uh, it's really impressive work. Congrats. Well, I, I, I don't want to take, you know, all credit for it. You know, uh, like a typical running back, I want to thank my teammate, this, uh, the offensive line, you know, uh, Gabe, Josh himself, Jason, Ethan, Sophie, Jasmine, uh, it's a team effort, Stefan. And, you know, we don't, I don't do anything on my own here. You know, I can't get a hundred yards or a hundred thousand downloads without them. So, uh, it's, you know, big, you know, gotta, gotta, gotta give the credit to my team here. But I, will, yeah, I will give credit to Joel. I give credit to all teams. I just uh, checked when I was in Albania. Actually, it was 1996. Oh, oh, God. One well, year, guess... 1996. <laughs> hey? Coming soon. We'll, we'll keep that in mind. My we'll freshman year of college, so we could just keep it, you know, if we want to just keep along the path of my life, there's still an opportunity here. The college football playoff committee, sadly, has left us with little fodder for one of America's favorite pastimes, whining about the college football playoff committee. Number one, Alabama versus number four, Cincinnati. Number two, Michigan versus number three, Georgia. Both straightforward picks for the semis given this weekend's results. And so we cannot complain about a poor underdog group of five team getting left out for the umpteenth time. Go Bearcats. And Joel, we can't really say much about Bama being in that number one slot after the Tide and their freshman quarterback Bryce Young beat the ever-loving crap out of what had been an indomitable Georgia Bulldogs defense in the SEC title game. And all that after I'd said repeatedly that this was, by Alabama standards, a mediocre team, which I guess goes to show how high Alabama standards are. So nobody will believe this, but before kickoff, I was leaning heavily toward Bama and this is why I do think there's something to the idea that teams have to be tested somewhere along the way, unless they're truly world beaters, right? Um, and I can even refer to my record. I was the only person at ESPN.com in 2018 to pick Cle Clemson to beat Alabama in a championship game. Just so you know, I have a record here of going against the grain. But Did you I'm pick just, the Giants against the Patriots in the Super Bowl? I, you know what? I well, I mean, I, I didn't have anywhere to pick it, but I did, I, it didn't seem implausible to me. But, I, you know, the thing about Bama is Bama had just pulled the rabbit out of its hat against Auburn. Did you pick Rocky over Apollo Creed? Well, I went with we Apollo. Yeah, that's fine. That's, yeah. um, the little, I did not pick the Little Giants. Um, but no, so Bama had pulled this rabbit out of the hat against Auburn. Barely held on against Arkansas. Pulled out an ugly win against a terrible LSU team, Josh. Uh, that isn't even going to a bowl game this offseason. And, and that's to say nothing of the loss. Well, oh, LSU's going to a bowl game against Kansas State, the Texas Bowl, on January 4th. And you're going to be there. We're going to be there. Together. Oh, wow, really? Wait, is they, are they like, aren't they five and... We no, can talk they're about six that and later. six. They beat A&M. Uh, oh, that's right. That that wasn't supposed to happen. Well, at any rate, <laughs> speaking of A&M, you know, Alabama lost to them. And usually while losing a game in college football is fatal to your playoff hopes... There's something to be said about having your back up against the wall. So, like, meanwhile, Georgia hadn't won a game by fewer than three touchdowns since a 17-point win over Kentucky at home. And I watched that game, and the final wasn't even as close as the score. So I just think when I come back to Saturday, it isn't to say that Georgia was overrated or that Bama was a little underrated. It's just that 
Georgia was able to overwhelm everybody else all year with its athleticism, its depth, its intensity. And that's not the kind of stuff that's going to work against Bama. Bama has five stars, too, and high four stars. And, you know, so once the game settled into something of a normal pace and you realize, oh, Georgia's never played against someone against uh, anyone as fast as Jamison Williams all year. The best quarterback it's played all year? Who is it? Was it Hendon Hooker at Tennessee? Uh, K.J. Jefferson at Arkansas? Both fine college football quarterbacks, but guys that are going to grow go pro in something other than sports. So, you know, the best team Georgia had faced before last Saturday was either number 19 Clemson, number 22 Arkansas, or number 25 Kentucky. And so, again, that's not to say that Georgia was overrated, but the Bulldogs took a step up in class on Saturday, and it showed. Does that mean that Georgia should have been left out? Is there any argument? No, Stefan, no complaining, remember? I Did know, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not complaining. I'm just asking a question. But Maybe Stephen, the answer is no. They clearly were the third or fourth best team. There were, I mean, there were, I think there was a legitimate argument for it. I don't, I mean, I think that they are still one of the four best teams in the country, but looking at their resume in retrospect, I mean, what's there? You know, what's the, the, what's the impressive win they had all year? Was what's there is season long. What's there is season long dominance, and there is something impressive about what they did to these teams who were not amazing. But um, there's a reason that there aren't that many one loss teams in the country. Like it's hard to beat a bunch of teams that are good and not great, and to do it by as much as they did is really impressive. But who they remind me of is that 2011 LSU team, which used a dominant defense um, to destroy a schedule except for the 9-6 win, regular season win over Alabama. Um, but they were just like completely suffocating and and against a much better schedule than this year's Georgia team. I mean, they beat Oregon that year. They they beat Georgia in the SEC championship game. I mean, they were amazing. And then in the, in the title game against Bama, their offense just could not do shit. Um, and Literally. When, like they, 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 they got blanked. They, <laughs> they barely crossed the 50-yard line. And yeah. so... It's it's one of the you know well known sayings in college football, Joel. When your quarterback is Stetson Bennett the fourth, that means your quarterback is Stetson Bennett the <laughs> fourth. And when they got behind, they're just not equipped to come back. And um, you know Bryce Young has showed all year um, what a kind of quarterback he is. He's not been great in every game. He wasn't great against LSU, but um, it, it just seemed like this was the formula to beat Georgia's to get ahead and, you know, hold on. But it's not like there's not a formula to beat a high powered offensive team. I mean, you saw what Michigan did to Ohio state. It's not like this Georgia team is like uniquely like every team can be beaten. Alabama was beaten. It's just that Georgia got exposed by, and and you said it exactly right, Joel, by like the type of team that can beat the type of team that they are. Does that mean uh, that we are looking at a rematch in the finals? I mean, do you believe, based on what you've seen of Georgia, that they are a better team than Michigan, who is peaking like at absolutely the right time? I mean, they dominated Ohio State. They utterly destroyed Iowa in a very sort of sneaky, methodical way. It was only 14 to 3 at half, and it ended up uh, 42 to 3. Um, but it was not like there was any chance that Iowa, who seems to like punting more than anything else, was going to get back into that game. <laughs> well, I was telling our friend uh, Ben Mathis Lilly, Joel, that that semi, the Georgia-Michigan semi could either be 
a classic game between two teams that play really well, like really similar to, to each other. Um, or it could just be absolute garbage, um, yeah. <laughs> like 10 to three game that nobody wants to watch. I'm curious to see what, what it's going to be, but like Michigan is also a team that if like things don't break their way as they've been, they like might be kind of ugly to watch in the second half of a game. They're losing by two touchdowns. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess like, who do you think is better equipped to win that style of bully ball, right? Uh, Michigan can inflict its will on, you know, the Northwesterns, the Purdue's, the Indiana's of college football, but doing that against Ohio State. Yeah. Not, not against, but see, the thing is, Ohio State wasn't bully ball though. Like, I mean, they, we'd already seen them get beat up by Oregon, who, who's been getting, you know, got its ass kicked two weeks in a row. Right. Um, I mean, you would think before this Alabama game that Michigan would have absolutely no chance of cramming the ball down George's throat. That seems like I more, still don't think more so. of a possibility, but mm, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it, it doesn't seem like there's any way they can do what they did to, to the, their Big Ten opponents to right. Georgia. And, and remember the game against Ohio State. Again, for all of the, the deserved praise for beating Ohio State, you know, finally, you know, get, slaying that dragon, that was really favorable. For, for Michigan, like they got that game at home in terrible weather, even though Ohio State sort of ran, you know, they still threw for a lot of yards, compiled a lot of offensive yard. It, those conditions were not favorable to them. If that game was played on a neutral site somewhere else, I'm not certain that Michigan wins that game in quite that way. Um, so do I think that they can beat a team that seems to be a more athletic, faster version of themselves on a neutral field? Uh, that seems like a tall order, but maybe they will. I don't, I, you know, I don't want to, you know, rain on our Michigan friends parade, but I didn't see anything in them this season that indicated to me that they were an elite team. I thought they were a good team, but this is a different, this is a step up in, in level. And I'm not sure that, you know, they've, they've seen anything like what they're going to see against Georgia. Really? You didn't think that? I mean, yes, the Ohio State game obviously was played at home in front of 111,000 local fans, but they kind of dominated that game. Um, you know, people were saying Ohio State could have ended up number one if things had broken their way. If they had beaten Michigan and Alabama beat Georgia, we'd probably be looking at Ohio State number one. But the, and that, that, that's kind of the problem with college football is that we can't really tell who's good because they don't play similar schedules. We don't know, you know, it's just really tough to do the strength of schedule thing. But, mm -hmm. I mean, Ohio State had a very good offense at a point during the season and still, you know, ran it up against Michigan at points. But, I mean, again, in their big game of the year, their big showcase of the year, they got bullied at home by Oregon, who we've seen, and obviously Oregon, the Oregon of November is not the Oregon of September. But for you to get your ass kicked by Oregon now in retrospect, Seems to tell us that maybe Ohio State wasn't quite as good, but they kind of got to skate on some of these games. And I think they they even played not all that great against Tulsa, for instance. So, I, you know, I, I'm not saying I don't mean to denigrate Michigan, even though it's coming out that way. I'm just sort of dubious about their prospects in that sort of a game against a team with I mean, we know it's not even a question. Georgia has better and bigger athletes than they do. 
But Joel, if uh, Ohio State had been Michigan, you would say, oh, they got tested against Tulsa and Oregon. And that's why they came out <laughs> and were so good at the end of the season, because they got tested like Bama did in looking like crap against Auburn and against LSU. Be consistent, man. Be consistent. No, stop it. Well, I mean, uh, look, of course, you'll do anything. You'll do anything to denigrate Alabama and to you know, under, <laughs> undermine their dominance. Uh, I would, not, I would not never. I would never. Well, so it's up to Cincinnati and Michigan to prevent an SEC rematch that the country does not want to see. And just very quickly on the on Cincinnati before we move on to the coaching stuff, um, this will not be a referendum on schools like Cincinnati. It's just one game. Um, they do not have the talent, you would think, to stay with Alabama. They have a good defense and they have some good skill position players, so it won't be impossible for them to win in Alabama hasn't played great in every game. So you'd have and to consider... And they just lost one of their best offensive players uh, in the in the SEC championship game, John Michi, the, the receiver. So they're yeah. hobbled. So, so it, it's not impossible. Alabama is going to be a massive favorite. But like the thing to say about this is just let them play the game. Like why... There's no reason to say Cincinnati and teams like them have no chance, so let's not even try. We're, we're letting them try. I'm going to curse. Who the fuck can stay with Alabama? Like Bama beats everybody's yeah, ass. It won't prove any. So, it right. won't prove anything <laughs> yeah. if they lose. Right. Just they'll lose like everybody else if they lose, and maybe they'll win. Right. Well, I was going to the last thing is that look, this has been more than twenty years of waiting for this to happen, and I don't think we should overlook that. I mean, I wrote about this for the Wall Street Journal in nineteen ninety eight after Tulane went undefeated and oh, the, the Tulane's president lobbying to, to change the rules um, when the BCS was formed. So this is like an important you know, achievement, I don't know, or a recognition or, or willingness on the part of the college football establishment to actually let this happen. And I think that's worth noting. And look, if they lose 42 to nothing, it's going to renew calls for, you know, they shouldn't have been there, blah, blah, blah. But it's not really going to matter ultimately when they expand to 12 teams anyway. So at least it happened once before it will happen on the regular. Stefan, let's just think of them as, a, if that does happen, let's just think of them as a Big Ten team like Michigan State or whoever else that gets their ass kicked in the semifinals mm-hmm. by Alabama. And it shouldn't reflect poorly on the rest of the league or the rest of the teams in the group of five. It just means... They played the number one seed on a neutral site. I mean, and Bama kicks everybody's ass under those circumstances. So it doesn't have to mean everything. It doesn't mean that we don't have to acknowledge that Cincinnati had a great season and deserves to be here. So right after we uh, recorded last Monday, LSU hired Brian Kelly from Notre Dame. And then a few days after that, he had an introductory uh, thing at halftime of an LSU uh, men's basketball game. Jeff Darlington on Twitter compared how Brian Kelly said one particular word to his Notre Dame players a couple days earlier and then at halftime of that basketball game. Let's take a listen. Those incredible 12 years of my life for me and my family um, being here at Notre Dame. It's a great night to be a Tiger. I'm here with my family and we are so excited to be in the great state of I would love, I would like to welcome Brian Kelly and his family to Louisiana as a, a fellow uh, Louisianan with a Southern accent. Um, it's just great to, great to, to, to have him here. Um, <laughs> do you want to interrogate me about this uh, hire, Joel? How are we going to do this? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, it is kind of funny because 
Uh, Louisiana has a Louisiana accent. It doesn't have a Southern accent. So I, I like, I don't know. Can we hear you say family? <laughs> Stefan and I have already said it. You both have said it? Family. How did that sound? Did, did, did it sound, did it, it sounded, have a twinge? It sounded like you. You sounded okay. like yourself. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I have a non-regional accent at this point. I've lived around a lot. Um, but let's talk about whether or not you're happy to have Brian Kelly as your head coach. Because my theory is that just on football merits, this is one of the best coaches in the country that was on the market that we didn't know. You should be happy. If you, if, like, if you, if everything aside, like if you just put aside that he's sort of a loathsome person, which has never stopped anybody from enjoying a head coach before, but how do you feel now that you have landed the great Brian Kelly? It's the great question. Yeah, from a wins and losses standpoint, from a program building and program stability on field standpoint, the guy has won everywhere he's been. You can't really argue with the record. He seems just like an absolutely miserable person, like somebody that you would not want to spend any time with if you're a college football player or just like a regular human any, any in any sort of uh, context. Um, but there seems to be a very strong correlation between miserable people and people who are successful as coaches in, uh, in college football. And so if the thing that we care about as fans is um, our team's winning games, then it is hard to argue with the higher Stefan, although I personally would prefer a coach who I did not think was a miserable person. Um, it's a totally understandable hire given who succeeds in this uh, sport that we all love so dearly. Well, isn't it also a perfectly predictable hire in terms of who the people who support these programs want to hire? He's old, he's white, he's rich, he's establishment elite. Um, and as we saw at that basketball game, he's a transparent phony. So who does this serve? Similarly situated alumni and boosters, the donor class, not the player class. I mean, college coaching is kind of a Ponzi scheme, right? You hire a big safe name, it juices the donations for a couple of years. You hope there's some success, limited or, or longer. And when there isn't, you know, and the coach shows up on Instagram shirtless in a hot tub with his rebound girlfriend, you pay him off and hire the next big name. The players keep coming. The donors always, though, need a fix. Uh. Very uh, uh, moralistic there from from Mr. Fatsis. Um, so Notre Dame did not go out and hire another Brian Kelly. They promoted their young, black, very respected and beloved defensive coordinator, Marcus Freeman, who had come from Cincinnati actually before this. And let's listen to what the Notre Dame players thought um, when they were introduced to their new coach. Oh, what I'm going to do now, okay, because you're brand new, That was really great to see and hear. Marcus Freeman um, is in his 30s. He is a um, very handsome man, first of all, the most, most important mm -hmm. thing to note. But he is just, you know, revered in the sport as incredibly smart, great at scheming up uh, defenses. Again, has succeeded everywhere he's been and gets like one of the premier jobs in college football at a pretty young age. And Joel, like Notre Dame clearly won the press conference here. Mm -hmm. um, but as I said before, miserable son of a bitches do well as college football coaches. And just because 
his players love him. And just because uh, I think he's the kind of guy um, who should be getting a job like this, that's no guarantee that Notre Dame is going to do any better under him, you know, wins and losses wise than it did under Brian Kelly. It's tough to imagine, and not to be, you know, negative or whatever, but it's tough to imagine that he will have a better day than the one he had when he was just announced to his team there. Um, now, you know, I have a friend of mine, um, from back home who played linebacker at Notre Dame in the nineties under Lou Holtz. And, you know, he's in constant conversation with all of the, the exes or whatever. And they're like, they're so excited that you know, they could not wait. Uh, to get Marcus Freeman there. So it was a very popular hire. But the only thing that I would say is that, man, people really sort of overlook how good Brian Kelly was and what he actually did there. Um, you know, at Notre Dame, Brian Kelly had to recruit athletes who are not only willing to take calculus, but pass it as a freshman, right? Like that is a institutional barrier that most elite college football programs don't have. And I'm just trying to imagine a guy in his first job, having that as an obstacle ahead of you, um, trying to c- maintain that that culture that Brian Kelly established there, that winning culture. And it just sort of makes me worried. Like, I mean, I, you know. I, David I, Shaw succeeded with those restrictions at Stanford for a while, but that program's kind of fallen apart. Yeah, man, it's in, just really hard. Years. It's just hard to maintain, even if you're one of the best coaches in the country. If you have any kind of academic standards in major college football, it is going to be a problem, and eventually you're going to hit a cap because there's only so many fast, mean, great football players who are willing to go to class in the way that you need to at Notre Dame. Uh, that's just the bottom line, and that's going to be something that Marcus Freeman's going to have to deal with. Maybe he can out-recruit that. Maybe he's charismatic enough that it won't matter, but um, you know, the history of Notre Dame, the recent history of Notre Dame suggests that it's not as easy as people think it is, and Brian Kelly, the reason that he's so... He was so he made so much money right now, and uh, LSU went and got him is because he was the exception. Like that's it's not that's not supposed to be the rule at Notre Dame. Up next, Bradford William Davis on the baseball lockout. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about Deion Sanders' huge success as the head coach at Jackson State University, which I personally did not see coming. What does it tell us about Deion? What does it tell us about the future of sports at historically black colleges and universities? To hear what we have to say about that, you need to be a Slate Plus member. That membership gives you extra hang-up segments, plus you can listen to all Slate podcasts without ads and get unlimited reading on the Slate site. It's only a dollar for the first month, so give Slate Plus a try. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. 
In the wee hours of Thursday morning, Major League Baseball drastically overhauled its website, erased from view like a disgraced apparatchik in a Soviet Politburo photo, were images of players and news about teams. In their place, stock photos of baseballs and empty fields and headlines including, were these the worst or best jerseys ever? And reliever traded for same Hall of Famer twice. What all that means is that the lockout is on, with ownership imposing a shutdown of all baseball-related activity. No free agent signings, no trades, no team-supervised workouts, nothing. Bradford William Davis joins us now. He's an investigative reporter for Insider and co-hosts the Baseball Prospectus podcast, Five and Dive. Welcome to the show, Brad. Yo, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, we definitely want to discuss your fascinating investigative piece on Insider last week about MLB using two different baseballs last season and how that affected play. But let's start with the lockout. First work stoppage in 26 years uh, of labor peace. No baseball activity, but lots of bloviation, especially from the owners. What are the key areas of disagreement between players and management? Ah, oh, man. Everything is too, like, try to word, right? Um, <laughs> but the main things are, are of course, economic concerns. Uh, players are upset that most of uh, that pay doesn't correlate with production and the most likely years of a player's production, which are, their, you know, their younger years. Makes sense for anyone who follows sports or anyone who's ever tried to, like, you know, run a lap in the thirties, <laughs> you, you are a better athlete in your twenties and you're likely to be more productive in that during that time period. However, that is the, the time where you make the least amount of money, uh, that is structured for a reason. Players are often manipulated, um, with their, you know, with the way their, uh, service time works, meaning that they're allowed to, uh, not allowed, major league baseball teams are allowed to keep them in the minor leagues, which they're, where they're paid like peanuts essentially for, um, an extended period of time. Uh, beyond their clear and natural ability to perform at a big league level so that they can have extra control over their salaries and, uh, and prohibit them from, from reaching free agency a little earlier. Um, they are, you know, so they're, so they're arguing over, you know, how all of that pre free agency compensation works, um, how quickly you can reach free agency. This seems to be a significant concern for the, you know, for the players. Of course, management's line is that, um, that these are necessary, um, restrictions, you know, so that uh, teams, both big market and small market teams can compete. Uh, that is, of course, debatable. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, uh, front on uh, where my lean here is. But, you know, but uh, I can say that, you know, management is, has not shown uh, a sturdy record of their accounting, um, you know, as, as far as what money they're actually making in. They're just kind of like say, saying it as an article of faith. You should trust us that we, that we really need to pay you guys less. What I would want to know is, how how likely is it that they're actually going to miss games now? Because when, you know, I I, I got to admit, I'm you know, I don't follow baseball that closely, but I know that the baseball season doesn't start until April, right? So we have quite a bit of time. So at this point, right where you stand right now and following, you know, the negotiations, how likely is it that there will be any games actually missed? My gut says low, and that's also based on some players I've spoken to as well. And I think their big one, the big reasons why I'd say it's low is actually because of the pandemic. They, I think both players and owners are understand they need baseball back, uh, given the significant losses that kind of everyone incurred in 2020. Um, it was only a 60 game season, which means that player salaries are prorated to 60 games. 
uh, that, and be, given that there was no gate revenue and, you know, there was, that means that, uh, there was significant losses on the management side as well. I suspect that there's going to be a, a desire for like, you know, for something to be worked out. However, I think that, you know, that, uh, Rob Man for the Major League Baseball commissioner chose to install a lockout as a negotiation tactic. It's not necessary to be clear. Like, you know, that defensive lockout stuff is, is rhetoric. Um, and pretty nasty rhetoric in my opinion as well, but it is something that they, you know, that they, that they are using to speed up negotiations on their end. Um, because I think they do want to, you know, play games soon. They just want the players to, uh, withdraw some of the things that they're asking for. You mentioned that you said that they lost a lot of money in the previous year, but they also have been really guarded around their books. What is the, like, how do we verify that these major league baseball teams have actually lost the money or suffered the losses that they claim they did because of the pandemic shortened season. <laughs> All we have are like Forbes estimates. Uh, the Braves are like uh, owned by a publicly owned company. So we have a little insight into uh, Braves being the world series, defending world series champions. Now um, yeah, they're owned by Liberty media. So we have a little insight into stuff into their stuff, but like, otherwise it's all just kind of like, you know, again, Forbes valuation estimates, and pretty much, and, and like, I think 29 or 20 to 30 teams were, were valued in the, you know, at least over a billion, you know, with, uh, the, I think the Marlins being like 950 or something like that million dollars. Um, significant, you know, they, 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 these are very, these are money making institutions. They might have had a one year dip. That is what I'm conceding, you know, a potential one year dip. Um, that is leading some people to feel, you know, to cry poor, you know, but, um, but no, over the last, 20 years, maybe longer, you know, um, every sort of externally available um, economic indicator points to significant growth. So um, for all the conversation about the divide between big market and small market teams, and there is massive payroll divide, there's um, more parity in Major League Baseball than in other major professional sports if you look at just who wins championships. Um, there's been maybe 15 different teams that have won the last 20 World Series or something like that. And so um, I'm curious, Brad, if you feel like actually the economic system in place in baseball, while being unfair to younger players, and like you said, being um, very tenuous in terms of the correlation between compensation and production, if the like <laughs> systematic underpayment of younger players actually does help the smaller market teams compete um, and, you know, field teams that are able to beat the Dodgers and the Red Sox and the Yankees? I mean, it probably does um, to some degree, in my opinion. Because not to say that, like, that means that that system should stay in place, but it's just like yeah. an, interest, it's an yeah, interesting that's, that's, that's not- question. No, it's a great, good point, Josh. Like, when, if you're making, say, the league minimum, right, which is a lot of money, of course, for all of us journalists and podcasters, um, which is, you know, something like in the, fi- in the, I think, 550 is, like, the current current number. I could be, could be mistaken about that. But the point is, like, about half a mil. Um, that is something that is essentially free from the perspective of a big league team because you have to field a roster of at least 26 people, you know? And so they could all, you know, they can make any, you know, from from 550 or whatever to infinite, you know? Um, but as long as you have, you know, 26 guys making 550, you, you have, you have your team, which, so, which, so effectively, um, if you have a good player in those first three or four years of their, of their, of their career, making that league minimum, you are cashing out 
as far as like actual production um, relative to their to their income. It's like having Russell Wilson on his rookie contract, you know, which the right, exactly. Seahawks did when they won the Super Bowl. But of course, it, you know, the difference is with, with a lot of uh, NFL teams, um, and not to say that NFL, the NFL economic structure is good either. But what they but what they frequently do in the NFL is they like you know is is if you have a decent quarterback on that rookie contract, a lot of times you know teams will immediately start spending at lots of different skill positions or, or, you know, or to, or to shore up the lines and everything to make that playoff run right then and there, because, you know, they, they realize the surplus value in major league baseball. They just kind of like, you know, um, don't pay anyone <laughs> hope for the best. And they collect <laughs> yeah. uh, revenue sharing from the wealthier teams. And one of the, one of the union's big complaints justifiably is that too many teams are either tanking and not spending money or just operating on a year-to-year basis where they're not going to spend and they're pocketing the revenue-sharing money. And where it comes out in the wash, I think, is not just the underpayment of the younger, talented players, but you, you sort of combine that with the fact that teams have been less willing to part with um huge amounts of money for older players in the way that they did in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And overall, and this kind of surprised me, the average major league salary has fallen 6% in the last four years, five years. Um, And the the median salary is down 30% from 2015. That's shocking in a sport that has continued to expand its revenue base um, in the last decade. Right, and and if you um, and if you read any headlines, inflation, you know, is uh, is not sinking; it's rising significantly. So when you so big so big market salaries aren't what they used to be. Like a hundred million dollar contract, of course, is a substantial amount of money, and I'm happy for anyone who's able to sign that. But a um, hundred million dollar contract in 2005 is not the same as 2021. You know, mm-hmm. it just is not. When you consider all, you know, the rising amounts of revenue and likely profit that uh, all these teams are, are, you know, are facing when when you see you know, oh yeah, this guy signed for X amount of money. Um, that is much more of a steal than it once was given when you consider, you know, the money that uh, in all likelihood exists in the game. Um, I believe, I think, I want to say that uh, either Derek Alvin or Bobby Montano from uh, the Yankees blog, Views from 314 Street, was criticizing the, the actually the Yankees. Again, you know, the, the, the famously like, you know, um, expensive and lavish Yankees for uh, running a payroll that is effectively lower than it was in the mid-aughts. Now, again, the team's been good of late, but they've also passed on a lot of different, you know, um, marquee players at needs, you know, at at team needs. Um, Out of a sense of a a fear of uh, having to spend, you know, uh, spend too much money into the luxury tax, you know, and, uh, and lose draft picks and Pay some sort of some sort of money towards you know smaller market teams, uh, so even big market teams are are, are trying are are acting uh, with like a de facto salary cap at this point, and, uh, and and we're seeing that in you know in the quality of the team and the, and the lack of interest in players that clearly fit you know the needs of like some of these big market franchises like the Yankees and Red Sox who you know famously traded Mookie Betts away uh, just a year after winning the World Series with them. All right, let's move on from baseball, the sport, to baseball's the balls. Um, you had a really amazing scoop, just incredibly well-reported, Brad, on, on Insider um, about baseballs. And, yeah, tell folks what you found. 
Yeah. So uh, th- thank you, first of all. Um, I uh, Major League Baseball used two different baseballs, plural. <laughs> that is the finding. Um, there is a fantastic astrophysicist named Dr. Meredith Wills, um, who has been studying baseball construction for the last few years. And she noticed a quirk, even as far as last year, that baseballs seem to be being manufactured in like two different ways. Uh, some with higher center weights, the center weight being like this, the, uh, the yarn wrapped like cork and rubber, like pill of the baseball, some with the lower center weights. And as a physicist, she understands that like uh, a heavier, lighter ball, you know, in certain ways can like, you know, lead to different performance outcomes, you know, more home runs, less home runs, hard, you know, hit balls that get hit harder or less hard or whatever. Um, and, uh, and she noticed they, they were quite, they were distinct, you know, in our report, she studied about 150 or so baseballs, um, from multiple parks across all across the season and found that, yeah, they were, um, you know, there was basically a ball A and a ball B, um, and they were being distributed across, you know, across the league. That's kind of crazy enough. Like it's, it's hard to imagine, like say like the NBA using two basketballs. And, and to be and clear, both, the players both, didn't know about this. Nobody that you interviewed in baseball knew that this was happening. And we're talking players, we're talking rookies, we're talking veterans, we're talking um, scouts, talking coaches, and I'm talking front office executives. Every single person I spoke to, you know, um, all all said that they were under the assumption that there was going to be one baseball this year. Because Major League Baseball had said there was going to be one baseball this year. Yeah, like, what would you think? Like, oh, yeah, there's going to be yeah. <laughs> multiple baseballs. Did um, you get a sense, Brad, whether baseball... MLB Central New York knew or was tracking how they were distributing these two differently constructed balls. I mean, they they seem to say in a statement that, oh, it was pandemic and production issues and supply chain issues. Um, but I didn't get the sense also that there was a firm denial that, hey, we were actually doing this deliberately. Like we were running a controlled experiment that we weren't yes. telling anyone about. Right. Um no, Major League Baseball owns a stake in Rawlings, uh, their um, baseball manufacturer, with the explicit intent uh, to have a more of a say in how the, how the baseball is manufactured. That's just that's for Pat. That's how, how, how I was reporting back when it happened. Um, they, uh, you know, Rawlings, you know, has the full ability to understand exactly where, you know, where balls are sent. Um, I don't have... Uh, I mean, a study like Dr. Wills is, it doesn't, it's not, doesn't, it doesn't have the sort of level of scope to really like to assess whether or not, uh, a disproportionate amount of ball A or ball B went elsewhere, you know, went one place or another. That's just like beyond the science. I don't want to be humble about that. But, um, but it does, but given that Major League Baseball does have the ability to know exactly where the balls go, it does open, you know, those kinds of questions. Right, because each ball is marked, the inside of the leather cover is labeled, you know the provenance of the ball so you can trace what the construction history is. Exactly. And to your point, um, when you look at the, um, uh, when you look at the batch codes, which which are essentially like little, like, you know, receipts that can be translated into uh, uh, the rough date the baseball was actually manufactured. uh, Major League Baseball was producing their an old, the older version of their baseball, the one one that they'd actually said that they were moving away from before the season began in 2021, and the old design many months I think as late as the latest ball we found from uh, with the older design was in August of 2021. So that that doesn't really hold up, you know, as far as far as explanation that it was just COVID supply chain, you know. Gibraltar or whatever, I don't know, like whatever hell, uh, <laughs> sort of uh, reasons for um, mixing balls this year. Well, so that so, so, makes sense. So, right, so the, the league said that they told the union, but your it, information reporting seems to indicate 
that the players themselves don't know. And in a manner of speaking, to sort of bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, I mean, this is a labor issue, right? Like if, if the, oh, the, the league doing this like is, is sort of an abrogation of trust between, you know, themselves and the front offices, right? Right. So, so one of the things I actually brought up was, you know, so it was a cross-sport example to the NBA. So back in 06, um, you know, some of y'all may, may remember this, but um, Spalding, the NBA's former ball manufacturer, switched from like, you know, organic materials to like synthetic ones and every player hated it. Um, I think only a few players were allowed to even test it out. And I think it was during the All-Star game. So it was kind of like a rushed kind of thing. Like, okay, here's some new balls, try it out. And then they just moved to that. Um, and it was so, uh, it was, it was uh, such a big deal that not um, on every level, from, from players to like front offices, that Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, um, actually commissioned a study to figure out how, how, how the balls were affecting, you know, the NBA that year. And the NBPA, the National Basketball Players Association, um, their union filed a grievance with the NLRB for not being included um, sufficiently on the uh, move to these new balls because they were really upset. And so that scar still remains so much so that when uh, the NBA moved from Spalding to Wilson going into this year, as far as their their, their uh, official ball manufacturer, um, even though they uh, apparently attempted to loop in the players a lot more, players are still complaining about that. And three pro and last I checked, I think NPR did you know did a report about this. Three point percentages are down pretty significantly. So how much more um, is you know are our ball players you know uh, being held out of about major league baseball ball players I should say like being held out of uh, you know uh, of of any sort of real input as to whether or not there's going to be you know one ball or two this year. Um, going to be upset about this. And, and I, I've, I've had, you know, including, you know, the people who comment on the record, like dozens of, of current active players expressing either their bewilderment, confusion, or anger um, that this happened. So it's, well, it, sure. it is not, I, mean, this, this... I, I, w- I wouldn't call it a first order issue given the, the money, you know, stuff coming first, mm-hmm. but it is a, a thing that they, that they are actively talking about. And well, I, it is a money issue because if that. you're a pitcher giving up a home run that goes 10 extra feet or you're a batter that's, you know, hitting the ball that doesn't go 10 extra feet because of the kind of ball that affects your performance and your statistics and what you're able to negotiate. And it, yeah, right. And if you have, and if there's any sort of inkling that there's, that anyone got a disproportionate amount of one ball versus another, like, you know, that it, it may, may be even worse, you know? And that's what players who were sp- speaking to me for the story were actively speculating on. Bradford William Davis is an investigative reporter for Insider. We will post a link to his piece about the two baseballs on our show page. Brad, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yo, thank you for having me. Coming up next, a look at sports blowouts. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. In sports, there are bad games, and then there are bad games. 
You know who had a bad game last week? The Oklahoma City Thunder, who lost to the Memphis Grizzlies on Thursday by a score of 152 to 79. The 73-point margin was the biggest in NBA history, which is impressive because the NBA has been around since the Truman administration. Tonight's not necessarily who we are, the coach of the Thunder said afterward. Josh, it's been a feast days for blowouts. England's women's soccer team beat Latvia 20 to nothing in World Cup qualifying last week, a few days after Belgium beat Armenia 19 to nothing in the same qualifying tournament. Before we get to that and how we feel about blowouts generally, we should examine the Thunder bed shitting a little bit more closely. I'll start by pointing out that Thunder forward Jeremiah Robinson Earl had a plus minus of minus 56 in just 23 minutes, which, silver lining, was only the second worst plus-minus in NBA history. Shout out to Manny Harris, who's minus 57 in the Cavs' 112-57 loss to the Lakers in 2011, remains safe at least until Monday night when the Thunder play the Detroit Pistons. So, in mild defense of the Thunder, Shea Gildress-Alexander was not playing Josh Giddy also not playing John Moraf so this is a tank play for Memphis this is a tanking team that was tanking even more than they wanted to tank um and the Thunder of you know they've they've had some decent games this year they're not like one of the worst teams in NBA history or anything like that and if you look at the like records for mm-hmm. um teams that have gotten their asses kicked in the NBA like the previous record was the Heat the 1991-92 Heat losing 148-80, to 80, and they made the playoffs. They had Glenn Rice. So there's hope for uh, for the Thunder. There's actually not hope for the Thunder. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, what, what can we say about this game? Probably not much. But what I will say about blowouts is that I love the hell out of them. I will ter- tune in <laughs> no matter what the sport. If there's, like, a score, if there's, like, a 70 nothing happening in college football— mm-hmm. If there is like a, you know, 100 to 30 in college basketball, I will be there. Let me know and I'll be there. And I get upset if the margin begins to erode. Like, I just want to see more points. Um, and it doesn't, the, the context doesn't even matter to me. Like, it's obviously, there's no kind of shame in rooting for a professional basketball team, an NBA team, to get beaten by the most points ever. But I will admit, Joel, I'm not super proud of it. That like if an Armenia is getting getting beat, I'm all I'm all in for that too. Oh man, man! I mean, you are you are Charles Barkley versus Angola. You know what I mean? You, you have <laughs> speaking no of incredible for an, un, yeah for an overwhelmed opponent. Uh, real quick, I think Jeremiah Robinson Earl, his previous claim to fame was being the son of the great Lester Earl. And hang up and listen, fans. Check out Google Lester Earl to know why his name <laughs> was one of the most notorious in college uh, basketball history. But you know, so. I think we've talked about this briefly before. I love a blowout if my team I'm rooting for is involved. Like, I will watch that shit start to finish, enjoy it every bit of the way. I don't really care to sit in for a game, for teams that I don't care about, and somebody's getting their ass kicked. Like, I, that, I have a lot less interest in that. I want to see a competitive game in my free time. And if one of the teams isn't up to the challenge or uh, doesn't show up on a particular day, then I just, I, I have very little interest in that. Or look, look, we're obviously not watching Thunder Grizzlies from start to finish. But Joel, if you had heard during the fourth quarter, like 
Hey, (laughs) Grizzlies are up 70. They could be setting a record. You wouldn't turn that on for shits and giggles? I'd be like, the Grizzlies seem to have that in hand. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll read the box score or I'll see the wrap-up on SportsCenter or whatever, TikTok, you know, whatever, Instagram, some Instagram highlight account, and I'll I'll pretty much get it that way. I don't need to to check in. I mean, Stefan, would you you turn to me TV? Yeah, I would check in totally, because I feel it's sort of like history being made. I mean, we love... So, you know, what if, what if it was, uh, oh, uh, Texas A&M is down 77 to nothing to Oklahoma. Would you check in on that? <laughs> well, so, you know, what's the over under on Johnny Jolly references in this segment? Oh, no. Well, you know, I actually covered that game. I was in the stands. <laughs> I mean, I was in the press box for that day. And my great line, I was like a 25 year old reporter. I was like, you know, Texas A&M couldn't have won even if they had the 12th man on the field. I thought that was a pretty good line, right? Yeah, good line. Uh, yeah, good line. Right. So, yeah, I was in the stands for that game, that day, stands, the press box and for that game. did you enjoy that, it? That was fascinating because those were two fairly even, not evenly matched, but they're both sort of powerhouse programs, and nobody saw that coming. The Thunder are bad. Like, that's not, I mean, they're not, they're not you know, the worst team ever, but they're not a good team. There's no reason to check in and watch Oklahoma City Thunder basketball. If Shai Gilgis-Alexander is the reason that you tune in to watch OKC Thunder basketball, then you really don't give a shit about basketball. Because I'm just like, how interesting could that actually be? See, but Joel, you're too hung up on who's participating and whether it matters, um, as opposed to just the spectacle of a team losing by 73 points. And I think that's the, and Roger Sherman of The Ringer has a great piece that he wrote in 2017 in which he created a blowout matrix. Um, He is a fan like Josh of all blowouts. Um, He opposes mercy rules. He opposes the idea of teams letting up, thinks you should play to the end. Um, And and, and, and the the taxonomy, like I think that the games that you would appreciate, Joel, fall into Roger's category of the beautiful blowout, where, as he writes, the most sporting thing that a team can do is to continue playing sports to the best of its ability until the rules indicate to stop. That's what happens in the beautiful blowout. The exact score doesn't matter. What matters is the winning team giving maximum effort for as long as it can and having a fantastic time doing it. And his archetype for that um, category is the USA beating Angola. Do you remember the final score of that game? 116 to 48. I I mean, mean, don't you think that that was was fun to watch? The Angolan team even enjoyed playing in that game. Wait, you guys think that those games were fun and retro? I don't remember anything about that dream team, but for the fact that they were dominant and they were on the, you know, the metal stand covering up their, you know, their Nike or I don't know if it was their Nike or their Reebok insignia. It was Jordan covering up the Reebok. Yeah. Yeah. Like I didn't, I mean, the spectacle of the dream team was sort of cute at first. And then slowly but surely you're like, oh, this is not actually... This is not worth me investing my time and watching, you know, Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan beat up on, you know, whatever developing nation that just fielded a basketball team a few years ago. I just didn't, I didn't find that to be compelling. I, 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 look, if you guys enjoy it, that's great, but I I assume we all have a finite (laughs) amount of time, uh, and you guys are tuning in to watch the Oklahoma City Thunder lose by 70. Have you watched any other Oklahoma City Thunder games or? I think I watched when they, um, the, maybe for like Lakers Schadenfreude reasons, because mm. the Lakers definitely struggled with the uh, with with the Thunder beyond beyond struggled. But there are some games on this Roger Sherman list, Stefan, mm-hmm. that I think even I, the heartless mm-hmm. Josh Levine, 
<laughs> uh, would would have to look a little bit of scans well, yeah. like look, Australia one sixty six, Marshall Islands three yeah. in basketball. Yeah, like that I might uh, wince at a little bit. I the last time we had this conversation, I think was U.S. Women's National Team thirteen, right. Thailand zero, mm-hmm. in the World Cup, and like. I'm gonna whisper here. I, did, I enjoyed watching that. I, like I enjoyed them kicking that, kicking their ass, Ooh. and um, so so thirteen to nothing in women's soccer in the World Cup is like that. You know, for everybody being like, oh, they shouldn't have been celebrating. That definitely did not bother me. But one sixty six to three, Australia Marshall Islands. That seems like it would go a little bit above the limit. I mean, I was I, I as I recall did not appreciate the U.S. women celebrating goals 10 through 13 because they were playing the equivalent of like a shitty high school team. I mean, so yeah, those games, Joel. Wow. Who is mm. more disrespectful? The U.S. women's <laughs> national team scoring a bunch of goals and treating it like a real game or you calling Thailand a shitty high school team? I would argue that you're being massively disrespectful <laughs> to the nation of Thailand. I didn't say they shouldn't have scored the goals. I said that like <laughs> celebrating goals 10 through 13 by like sliding on your knees to the bench and like I mean, doing look, happy once you're scoring, dances, once you're scoring, once you're scoring, I think when Slovakia, once you're scoring do, the goals, you're gonna, a, you should celebrate the goals. An orgy like, of unsportsmanlike behavior. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. You're with me on this, Joel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right, I mean, good. come on. Yeah, you're I mean, I don't do think that. Slovakia when it beat Bulgaria Joel is like in favor of NFL taunting penalties. Come on, at Joel. the Olympics we, when Slovakia beat Bulgaria 82 to nothing <laughs> at the Olympics in 2010. In women's ice hockey, I don't think they were celebrating the 64th and 78th goals. It, yeah. That I don't feel like I have context for is not being a hockey fan of what that would look like. I can imagine, I guess, a little bit. I looked at a little look of like. the. I, I looked at a little of the footage, and it looked like the uh, Bulgarian women couldn't skate, and the Slovakian yeah, women had been playing it. hockey yeah, since they tough. were four years that old. That makes it difficult. So that was uh, that was that was absurd, and that was the point that came out this week after England beat uh, Latvia 20 to nothing, it was that they shouldn't be playing each other. This is pointless. Um, so when, you know, Texas A&M loses 77 to nothing, as you said, Joel, that's fine because these are two teams in the same freaking conference or whatever that are, you know, top division one schools that are going to play each other. But when you have the control over allowing, you know, the Bulgarian women's hockey team into the Olympics or, or deciding that, Teams like Latvia should play in a qualifying tournament before they're allowed to play the best teams in the world to get into the World Cup. That makes more sense. So that's where, yeah, those blowouts aren't to me aren't quite as interesting. But when, you know, it's two NBA teams or two D1 football teams or two D1 basketball teams, yeah, I'm there. Yeah, see, I think yeah, international international play is so weird to me because things are so differently weighted. Like some obviously so many team so many countries have different resources and you know, whatever and and and, and do player acquisition in all sorts of mm-hmm. interesting ways. And so it's really hard. But like so my line, like you said, Stephen, like professional teams, major college teams, fine. But like once you start getting below that and it starts to get to be, you know, a FBS team playing an FCS team, particularly when they play HBCUs, like that really bothers me. Or when you get to like high school or youth youth sports or whatever, and then you start getting lopsided games, I just have very little interest in that. And but 
you know, I, I can't deny that. Yeah, I mean, there's some schools that I don't mind if they get their ass kicked on some teams. Like, if, if you tell me University of Texas is losing by 50 points in any sport, I probably will tune in. Um, <laughs> I, you know, if, uh, you know, the, the, the Golden State Warriors somehow found themselves getting their ass beat by 30 points on a weekend game, great. But, right, and you know, this is like, did it's you watch the news you? value. This was my point. Like, it's news mm. When an NBA, oh, when I'm one not, NBA team beats another NBA team by it's 70. News, but it's, it's not, not interesting. news when the UConn women beat Concordia by 60 on a Wednesday yeah. night, which happens all right. the time in women's college basketball. Or when one high school team runs up the score against a, a team of newbies. You know, the, well, you, that, that is different. Yeah. Did you all see that? I mean, it was a, like a couple of months ago when a school, a, a team in, LA beat another high school team 106 to nothing and kept scoring touchdowns late into the game. Like, see, I just, you know, who gets anything out of shit like that? You know, what I, mean? I just, I don't, I don't understand. Like, even when the, when the U.S. women's soccer team is rolling up goals onto, like, who is really benefiting from that? I don't, like, just tell me how that is actually interesting. I, you know, the, my understanding is that young, uh, women in America are inspired by that. That's what I, that's what I've been told. <laughs> okay. Well, um, but, uh, there are certain high school athletic associations that have rules that like coaches can get suspended if they win a game by like more than 42 points or something. Yeah, that I mean, in New York, once you, right? once you get below college, then it's just a different set of rules and, and expectations. And there's like safety issues, especially yep. in football that we mm-hmm. haven't addressed. I mean, I think one <laughs> dividing line here, like you mentioned the players not being able to skate. Like if you don't know how to play the sport, <laughs> <laughs> or don't own the equipment. Yeah. That seems like you're not really getting anything out of it. But with like the the soccer team, England beating Latvia and Belgium beating Armenia, it's like Latvia and Armenia are like good at at certain sports. It's not like they're like countries that only have like ten people and like not that many people maybe play. Not that many women play soccer in that nation. But it just doesn't seem to me absurd that England would play Latvia in a sport or like San Marino is always getting beat mm-hmm. in these like European qualifiers, but mm-hmm. it's like 10, nothing England, San Marino. And like, look, does it develop the English team and really test their medal? No. But is there something kind of cool about the fact that England has to travel to San Marino occasionally and like a qualifier to play a game? Yes. And does it like really harm Anyone? No. No, but like games a billion, they're like a billion or, other games. Those games usually like end a, up like five or seven nothing. There's a difference between yeah, a right. bunch of amateurs from San Marino or Monaco playing a legit European nation in soccer versus a country that has 200 women playing the sport, look, which is look, the look, case look, in look, Latvia. Look. Most of them who like have jobs or go to school. In, in the case of this England game, I read a piece in The Guardian that said that a number of the Latvia players were unable to get out of work or school to travel. Oh, my God. That is different. I mean, come on, man. It is different. It is different. It is different. This is the LSU in you. This is is what's coming out. You'd like to beat up on, like, Grambling or something? You want to see? How many times am I going to have to say, look, before you uh, people will let me talk? So... The Latvian and Armenian teams know they're not as good as England and Belgium. This result is not going to be a surprise to them. And it would shock me if it was any kind of like disappointment that will follow them for a day, a week, or the rest of their lives. Like in 20 years, you, th- you think they'll be like, oh, I was so humiliated that I lost this game. Or they'll be like, that was cool. I got to play against the England women's national soccer team. It's like the idea that there's harm being done here seems extremely exaggerated okay, to no, me. 
Josh, this is what I would say. I mean, okay, you're right. For the most part, nothing ever happens. But sometimes people get mad in games like this. And then, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, sometimes you don't want to see a mad Latvian. I'm just saying, like, some people are not willing. They're willing to take an ass whooping up to a certain point. And then it is, you know, have you ever, have you guys ever played pickup basketball in a neighborhood that you're not comfortable playing before and you get up on somebody and it's just like, you know what? There might be some cost to pay for winning this game in a certain way. <laughs> so I think, some, you know, sometimes people get mad and, you know, there might be a price to pay. Next time next time, Alex Morgan goes to Thailand. Watch <laughs> out. I'm just saying. I'm saying. And now it is time for Afterballs. The men's basketball team at Division III Yeshiva University beat the college at Old Westbury 105-77 on Saturday, extending to 46, the longest winning streak at all levels of men's college basketball, though they're still six wins behind the 52-game streak of the D3 women at Hope College. Yeshiva University is a private Jewish institution in New York City. The school observes the Sabbath. Its teams are known as the Maccabees. They're ranked number one in the D3 poll, and they have a star player, Ryan Terrell. He's a 6'7 guard. He's a senior. He averages 28 a game. He put up 51 last week against Manhattanville. He wants to be the first Orthodox Jew in the NBA. If he makes it, he would join Duncan Robinson as the only guy in the league now who played D3 basketball, although uh, Robinson did finish at Michigan after starting at Williams College. Um, Here is a clip of Ryan Terrell from a recent interview with CNBC. All the doubters and people saying that Jews can't play basketball, uh, we want to prove them wrong and, you know, really set an example for all the kids that doesn't matter where you're coming from, doesn't matter who you are or what what you believe in, that you you can succeed in life. All you people out there saying Jews can't play basketball. (laughs) All of you people. I am just appalled. Uh, my fellow Juice, I want you to go into this afterball feeling inspired. So, Stefan, what is your yeshiva, Maccabee? After my afterball last week about sports musicals, a few listeners wrote in about other shows. None of them were Broadway productions, but they're all way more compelling than Rocky the Musical. So, here's a follow up afterball. Joel, you said you're not a musicals guy fell asleep in Les Mis, etc. But listener Rob Kimbrough told me about a musical written pretty much for you. It is a Houston sports musical. Mm. It's called Old Stories, A Tale of Baseball and Love. It was written by former Astros pitcher, manager, and broadcaster Larry Durker. And you had others. me until it was about baseball. Larry Durker, <laughs> well, huh? What is a legend? Joel's talked about He's his Astros love. Yeah. The story in Old Stories is of a fictitious major league team's quest for a pennant in 1970. So not the Astros. Not the Astros. It was the this, Washington. Is falling, this is falling apart before Washington our Capitals. Hey, it's, it's, hey, let the wait, man talk about done. Houston, Josh. Yeah. Wait, I am not done. Joel, All right, I'll shut up. You. I'll Joel, shut you up. listen, Josh, be quiet. <laughs> Durker starred in the musical. It had a couple of performances at the Spring Branch campus of Houston Community College in 2009. 
Rob Kimbrough, our listener, was connected to the show. He directed two stage readings of old stories the year before. Rob said that Durker was, quote, a really great collaborator with a deep love of both baseball and musical theater, end quote, and a nice guy. As for the show, he said, hands down, best musical written by someone who's thrown a no-hitter. Look, I'm 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 all aboard. Larry Ducker, man, he is a nice guy. I didn't I I cannot confirm his love of musical theater. It did never come up before, but you know, very nice guy. But I, now I'm 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 interested in that. I'm, there you go, Joel. So, you're yeah. going to stage the revival. All right, the next uh, Wait, musical Stephen, I we found. Didn't, we didn't talk last week, or I don't know if you're planning to this week, but we had Daryl Morey on to talk about his sports theme musical. Remember that? Yeah, Small yeah. Ball. I forgot about. It. Was that a musical or just a play? I think it was a no, musical. It was a music- it was, it was a musical. musical. Oh, yeah. I apologize to Daryl Morey for leaving him out of this afterball, but now he's in the afterball. Josh, look that up while I continue to talk. All right, the next uh, musical I found was called Fantasy Football the Musical. There's a question mark in there. It played at the New York Musical Theater Festival in 2009, got a little pub at the time. It's set in 1991, a fantasy football origin story with characters including grown Bill Simmons and fantasy guru Matthew Barry. Uh, Here's a cut from Sports and Religion sung by the show's then 24-year-old creator, David Ingber. You can go to church and I will go to Fenway Park. When the rain comes, we'll put ponchos on and you just build an ark. But those skies will start to clear. All right, listener Matt Testa emailed with links and video doing all of my work for me about Nagano, the opera. Nagano tells the heroic story of the Czech ice hockey team that upset Canada and Russia to win gold at the 1998 Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan. The music was written by a Czech composer, Martin Smolka, and the libretto was written by a Czech playwright, Yaroslav Dusik. It debuted in 2004. The star of the story is the Czech goaltender, Dominic Hasek, who stoned Canada's Brendan Shanahan in a penalty shootout to win the semifinal two to one, and then blanked the Russians in the final one to nothing. Martin Schmolka, the composer, told Radio Prague International that because fans were calling Hasek God, the creators of Nagano the Opera had his character sing in Latin. They cast the forwards on the team as tenors, because tenors are usually the heroes in opera, and forwards are usually the stars in hockey. But since Hasek was the biggest hero, they made him a counter-tenor, an even higher singing range. All right, let's listen to the diminutive Hasek character thwarting a giant Canadian in a Mario Lemieux shirt. Where's the All music? Right, in other scenes, the Canadian goalie turns back a <laughs> critics, dancer. Critics call it a great show for Joel Anderson to fall asleep to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want somebody to say what the music was. Yeah. All right, in other scenes, the Canadian goalie turns back a dancer who's dressed in all black because he's the puck. 
and a Czech player <laughs> whacks the dancer puck past five falling Canadians into the net. A reenactment of Yuri Schlegra's goal in regulation, which in real life sounded like this. <laughs> Seems more appropriate for soccer. <laughs> Do you think that guy thought, Stefan, do you think that guy thought he was auditioning for Midsummer Night's Dream? <laughs> <laughs> I am totally like, no, that every different. underdog sports moment deserves an opera after hearing that. Um, all right, finally, one more. Listener Robbie Hudson made the most serious addition to this canon. King Kong, a remarkable 1959 South African musical based on the tragic true story of a heavyweight boxer named Ezekiel Dlamini, who rose to fame in the townships but wound up killing his girlfriend and then drowning himself in a labor camp. The show was a collaboration among black and white South African artists, a black composer, white librettist, and lyricist, all black cast of 70. The singer Miriam Makeba was the female lead. The trumpeter Hugh Masekela played in the orchestra. Nelson and Winnie Mandela watched on the opening night in Johannesburg. The show played to multiracial houses around South Africa for two years. It was a flickering moment of creative hope amid the repression of apartheid. Uh, King Kong was labeled an all-African jazz opera, and the music is terrific. Uh, here's the title track sung by Nathan Mededli. King Kong, bigger than Cape Town. King Kong, harder than gold. King Kong, knock any ape down. That's me, I'm in King Kong. And here's Miriam McCabe singing a song called Back of the Moon. Back of the moon, boys, back of the moon, boys. Top she been in Joba gives the back of the moon. After its smash success in South Africa, King Kong had a six-month run in London in 1961, but it didn't make it to Broadway. It was revived in South Africa in 2017 with some new characters, songs, and boxing scenes. I'll put some links about King Kong, including a five-page spread from Ebony Magazine in 1961 that I turned up, and the other musicals in our show page. And that's it. I promise never to speak of sports musicals on this podcast again. I could see, like, uh, just based on that short description, there being, like, a really cool movie about the making of the King Kong musical. Yeah. It seemed like, yeah. like we had that Invictus movie about South Africa. I would much rather watch the, like, King Kong version of, like, art being made in, in apartheid. That no, sounds really awesome. And, and the story itself is really fascinating. I mean, the actors had to sort of be housed together. They were basically picked up um, every night uh, when they would leave rehearsals to go back to their wherever they were staying. Um, so the production was this tragic story of apartheid, and the show itself was this, you know, this uplifting, um, also tragic story, but uplifting in the way it was created and, and the people that were involved in it. Yeah. Sounded very grim. Uh, to me, but uh, you know, maybe I, I'd be willing to give it a chance. That didn't sound that bad. So between that, the Larry Darker one, and uh, <laughs> the the Czech Miracle on Ice uh, ripoff, uh, you know, yeah, get some decent offerings here. 
<laughs> what about Daryl Morey? What did we find? I would refer people back to the segment we did with him before Daryl Morey had his oh, that, whole uh, Justin looked escapade. it up, apparently. That's what, is that what happened? No, I looked it up. <laughs> Shay Serrano did a whole uh, piece reviewing it. The, uh, you might recall, Stefan, that one of the gags was that these, uh, you know, the, the people on this, this island sign Michael Jordan to play on their basketball team, but it's not the actual Michael Jordan. It's just a guy named Michael right. Jordan. Uh, there's a song called Sex with Giants. I looked it up. I looked it up. Okay. How dare you? Small ball Sorry. I can't believe I forgot that. We've done so many shows, Joss. We've we've done we've done too many. That's our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Josh Levine, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelma Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.